Well, the title of the message this morning is Christ's Gifts to the Church. Christ's Gifts to the Church. Again, we're in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 13. Paul spent the first six verses of Ephesians chapter 4 detailing the unity of the body of Christ. And this was vitally important because it's only when the church recognizes this unity and strives eagerly to maintain it that the body of Christ is strengthened, the gospel moves forward mightily, Satan trembles, and the name of God is glorified. When we understand and live in light of the unity which has been purchased at the expense of Christ's own blood for his bride, the church. But this unity within the body of Christ, it makes great allowance for great diversity of giftedness amongst the many members of the body. In fact, this very diversity of giftedness, far from destroying unity, will, if properly understood, greatly promote it. What Paul's doing in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16, which will be our text for the next three weeks, we'll look at verses 7 through 13 this morning, Uh, we'll look at one verse next Sunday, Lord willing, and we'll talk about the importance of sound doctrine, and then we'll finish up with uh, verses 15 and 16 uh, three weeks from now, if the Lord so wills. But what Paul is doing here in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16, is communicating God's plan for church growth. You go to any Christian bookstore, and it seems like lined in the front of the, the church uh, or, uh, of the church resources section is grow your church, five tips for growing your church. If you want to have a big church, do this, say this, look this way, present your, your, your ministry this way, be relevant, dress this way, don't say these words. This is how you grow the church. Paul has a different idea for us about how the church grows, and he's going to lay out that plan for us here in Ephesians chapter Four. See, Paul is communicating God's plan for church growth, not so much numerically in numbers, but rather in the ever-increasing spiritual maturity of the members of the body of Christ. You see, Paul's shifting his thought from the unity of believers, verses 1 through 6, to the diversity or the uniqueness of believers in that we have all been giving, given differing spiritual gifts. This is the beauty of the body of Christ. Completely unified, yet completely unique. We're completely unified in him. One Lord, one baptism, one faith, one Father, one God over all who is in all and through all. We're unified, but yet we are so unique in our individual giftedness. How God has wired us up, the gifts that he has given us for the mutual edification of believers, that we might serve one another within the body. Great unity, yet great diversity, and God is glorified therein. Let's turn our attention to our text for this morning. If you have the ability, I want to encourage you to stand with us as we read God's word. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 13, pens the following words. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, 
for the building up of the body of Christ until we attain the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You may be seated. There's four points that I want to draw your attention to primarily from our text this morning. If you're taking notes, I want to encourage you to look at point number one there on your outline. It is this. Jesus has gifted each member of the body in a unique way. Jesus Christ has gifted each member of the body in a unique way. Let me draw your attention just to verse 7 here. Again, Paul writes these words, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Paul opens verse 7 with the little word, but. That little word is a transition word there. It's a transitional word. Paul is shifting the focus from the you and the all of verses 1 through 6, which both of those are plural. When, when, when Paul says you in verses 1 through 6 as plural, speaking about the body of Christ. When he says all in verses 1 through 6, that's speaking of the plurality of the body of Christ. And Paul is shifting his focus from the you's and the all's to the each one, which is singular in verse 7. Unity was the theme of verses 1 through 6. Now Paul is saying each of you individually, singularly, this grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Look briefly back at verse 1. Paul says, I urge you, plural, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. We're unified there. Look at verse 4. Paul says, there is one body, one spirit, just as you, that's collectively, we're called to one hope that belongs to your call. Lastly, look at verse 6. That's where we ended last week. Paul says, There is one God and one Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But now, Paul directs our attention to each one, each individual member. What Paul is saying in verses 1 through 6, again, that was our study for last week. He's saying that we're all the same in the sense that we belong to the body of Christ and we have all corporately, collectively, in Christ, received the fullness of God. That means that no believer is more a part of the body than another. That means that no believer gets more of God than another. We are all equal members of the body. We are all co-heirs with Christ. That is our unity. However, or but, As Paul begins verse 7 here, each member of the body receives a different gift or differing gifts from the Father. That's our diversity. In this sense, we're all like snowflakes. No two of us are identical. You ever looked at a snowflake or seen an image of a snowflake under a magnifying glass? It's, It's amazing how intricate each of them are. No two alike. Think of the number of snowflakes that fall in one city, in one part of the country, at one given snowfall, and then you think about all the winter. Incredibly unique. Each Christian is uniquely gifted and thus makes a unique and necessary contribution to the body of Christ. Within the body of Christ, each member has a distinctive service to render to the effective functioning of the whole. Let me rewind that sentence for you. In the body of Christ, each individual member has a specific and a unique function that you've been uniquely and specifically gifted to perform for the good of us all. Paul says, the grace given to each one of us. Now, 
it's important that we understand that when Paul speaks of grace here, he's not talking about saving grace. He's talking about equipping grace. Paul's already assuming his readers here are in Christ, saved by grace, possessing the promised Holy Spirit, a deposit guaranteeing the inheritance that is to come. So when Paul mentions the word grace here in Ephesians 4, 7, he's not speaking about saving grace. We're already saved by grace. He's speaking about that grace which enables us or equips us to be functioning, serving members of the body of Christ, using the unique giftedness that God has given to each one of us. God has graced each member of the body of Christ with a unique spiritual gift and the ability to carry it out in service to himself and in service to others. You may be sitting there thinking to yourself, well, I've read a a few things about spiritual gifts, but I don't, what is that? Really understand what what a spiritual gift is. Let me give you just kind of a, a simplified definition here of what a spiritual gift is. A spiritual gift is a supernatural ability. Let me just pause right there. We have many natural abilities, many natural endowments. A spiritual gift is something that's given to you that's not a part of your natural ability. It's something given to you at your conversion. It's a supernatural ability. It's given by the Holy Spirit. It's given to every believer at his or her her conversion and equips them to function in a unique way that builds up the body of Christ. Your spiritual gift is a supernatural ability given to you by the Holy Spirit at the moment of your conversion that equips you to serve a unique function that builds up the body of Christ. Here are just a few examples of spiritual gifts. Serving. You might have been given the spiritual gift of serving. You might have been given the spiritual gift of teaching. You might have been given the spiritual gift of giving. You could have been given the spiritual gift of exhortation. It's possible that you have the spiritual gift of discernment. Leadership. Maybe mercy. Or faith. There are multiple lists, and I'll tell you where they are here in just a few minutes, but there are multiple lists of spiritual gifts given throughout the New Testament. And it's interesting to note that in all of the lists that are given, they're all different. Matter of fact, there's there's very little overlapping of spiritual gifts uh, in those lists. And it's quite possible that the list of spiritual gifts that are given to us are not even comprehensive of the gifts that God gives to his children at conversion. But here's what you need to know. If you are in Christ, if you are a believer, you have been given at least one spiritual gift that is to be used not for yourself, but for the common good, Paul told the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians That your spiritual gift is given to you for the edification of the whole, for the building up of the body of Christ. And there's three truths that I want to draw your attention to that I think jump out of the text here in verse 7. Might want to jot these down if you're a note taker. Number one, Jesus graces us with these spiritual gifts. In other words, they aren't owed. They aren't deserved. Paul says, but grace was given to me. Grace by definition we do not deserve. Not only did we not deserve the grace that brought us into the kingdom of God, but we didn't deserve any other grace that would equip us for service within the kingdom of God. Your spiritual gift or spiritual gifts are a grace. Every part of life, the Christian life, is grace. Grace, grace, God's grace. Jesus graces us with gifts. They aren't owed and they aren't deserved to us. 
Secondly, I want you to notice that Jesus hasn't overlooked a single member of the body of Christ in his distribution of spiritual gifts. Look back at the text. Paul says, but grace was given to each one of us. Not a single child of God was overlooked in the, in the distribution process of spiritual gifts. Every single one of you in Christ has at least one spiritual gift given by God, by his grace. And then thirdly, I want you to notice here from verse 7, Jesus distributes his gifts according to his own sovereign choosing. The distribution of our grace gifts is in the hands of Christ. He apportions them as he sees fit. Uh, Paul's words, according to the measure of Christ's gift, uh, those words carry with them the idea of proportioning something out. Proportioning something out. Your, Your grace gift package, your gift mix, or your gift mix inventory, however you want to think about that, was delivered to you without your preference and without your input. Just like you showed up with a distinct eye color and a distinct hair color that were not of your own choosing, so your unique giftedness given to you to serve the body of Christ was not of your own choosing. The Lord who is all wise gifted you and knows exactly how to use you in service to himself and to others. God is wise and he's good and he sovereignly gives us the gifts that he wants us to have. How do we learn what our spiritual gifts are? I I wish we had more time to to look, and we will at another time and another date. This is for another message. But to explore in greater detail these spiritual gifts. But I want to give you a few thoughts here for how you might discern or how you might learn what your particular spiritual gift or spiritual gifts are. I would say this. I was thinking through this this week in my study. The first thing that you want to do is you want to make sure that you know Christ. Because it's only, it's only the children of God who are given spiritual gifts. Only the child of God has received a spiritual gift. So you want to make sure that you know Christ personally. That's number one. Uh, secondly, you would do well to study the passages in the Bible that deal with the spiritual gifts. And I want to give them to you this morning. They're somewhat easy to remember because there's two twelves and two fours. Two twelves and two fours. Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4. Two twelves and two fours. That's where you can find lists of spiritual gifts. Would encourage you to study those passages. Third, I think we would do well to ask God for wisdom to help us discern our spiritual gifts. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him, let him ask of me. I give it graciously without finding fault. Lord, how have you gifted me to uniquely serve? How have you gifted me to play a unique role within the body of Christ? Ask for wisdom. Fourthly, would encourage you to jump in and start serving. Just jump in and start serving. And, and ask yourself as you do, what areas of service bring me great joy? When I do this, I feel like I'm good at it, and I excel at it. And not only that, but it brings my heart a sense of great joy. Well, you've got to jump in and start serving somewhere to, to be able to discern that. So I would encourage you to jump in and start serving. There are a plethora of ways and areas in which you can serve here at the chapel. I want to encourage you in this. We had to create 
roles. We had to create jobs for VBS because we had so many volunteers. Let's repeat that again. It's, it's by functioning, it's by serving in various capacities that you begin to learn, hey, I really love that. I really feel like God has gifted me at this. I feel like I'm good at it and I excel at it to the glory of God. It brings my heart great joy when I serve. It brings my heart great joy when I teach. It brings my heart great joy when I labor in prayer for, one and for, for others. Jump in and start serving. And then lastly, listen to what others commend you for doing. There's that sense, that, that internal sense of, yes, God's gifted me in this way, and it brings my heart great joy, but, but then there's that confirmation where others say, you know what, the Lord has really gifted you at this. I don't know if you've ever realized that before, but I really think the Lord's gifted you here. What do others commend you for doing? What do others encourage you for doing? There are many assignments, many spiritual gifts to be discovered, developed, and deployed. I think I would say this, if I could just simplify those, that list of four or five things that I gave you there uh, for discerning your spiritual gift, I would, I would capsulize it by saying this. You can probably best discern your spiritual gift or evaluate where your spiritual gift or gift, gift mix lie where your passions and your abilities collide. Where your passions and your abilities collide, that's probably an area of giftedness for you given to you, graced to you by the Father himself for ministry, for service within the body of Christ. What are you passionate about? Where do your abilities lie? Where do those two intersect? Jesus has gifted each member of the body of Christ in a unique way. Hopefully sometime in the future we'll have an opportunity to unpack those two twelves and those two fours and look at those spiritual gifts in greater detail. Moving on in the text for this morning, though, let me draw your attention to point number two on your outline. It is this. Jesus won the right. He won the right to distribute gifts to the church. Not only has he gifted each member of the body of Christ uniquely, but he has won that right for us. Let me draw your attention to verses 8 through 10. Paul writes this, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he, Jesus, led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Verses 8 through 10 are unique they're challenging to interpret, and they're incredibly beautiful. These three verses here are a divinely inspired parentheses in Paul's thought process. But not only are they a divinely inspired parentheses, but they also serve as the theological underpinnings for the various gift, uh, spiritual gifts package, so to speak, that Christ has given to every believer. You see, in these three verses, verses 8 through 10, Paul answers this question. On what basis... Is Jesus able to give spiritual gifts to each member of the body of Christ? What qualified him to endow us with spiritual gifts? That's a good question. If Jesus Christ is the spiritual gift giver, the natural question that follows is, well, what enabled him? What qualified him to be the gift giver? 
And so Paul, almost parenthetically in his thought process, God divinely inspiring, as Paul is pinning these words, tells us what it was that qualified Christ to be the divine gift giver to every believer. Interestingly enough, this is one of those places, verses 8 through 10, where the New Testament quotes the Old Testament. See, in verses 8 through 10, Paul reaches back, actually, to Psalm 68, verse 18, which was penned originally by David. Paul reaches back in writing this letter to the church at Ephesus, and he quotes something David said way back in Psalm 68, verse 18. David writes this, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Let me give you a little bit of context about Psalm 68 here. Psalm 68 is a victory hymn composed by David to celebrate a king's triumphant victory in war and his subsequent coming home from conquest. Just let your mind kind of think about the picture there. You have a king who's gone off and he's secured a war victory and now he is parading back home with all the spoils of war. That's the picture of Psalm 68 here. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, receiving gifts among men. In its original context, Psalm 68 is a call to God to come and rescue his people. But in poetic fashion, David pictures a king here, who after having been triumphant in battle, would bring home the spoils of war and boast of his victory. The king would parade through town, and he would parade his treasures, as well as captured prisoners. In effect, saying to the people of the city, look what I've won. Look what I've won in battle. It served almost as a royal pep rally where the king was praised and honored for his great strength. Aside from parading his treasures and his conquered enemies through town, this victorious king would also display his own soldiers who had been freed, being held prisoner by the conquered enemy. These were oftentimes referred to as recaptured captives. So not only did this king defeat another, but in defeating another enemy, in conquering another enemy, he gained some of his own prisoners of war back. Oftentimes referred to as recaptured captives. These are prisoners who have been taken prisoner, again, so to speak, by their own king and thus given freedom. You see, the greatest treasure of war I hope you'll begin to put the pieces of the gospel together here. The greatest treasure of war is people redeemed. The greatest treasure of war is people redeemed. Paul takes this victory hymn in Psalm 68, and he uses it uh, illustratively of Christ. Paul paints the picture of Christ, our king, seated upon a white horse, our great warrior, the great warrior for the church. And following in his procession are throngs of people who were once held captive under sin's weight. That's you and that's me, friends. Recaptured captives. We were once lost, but now we're found. Jesus has defeated sin and death. He's won our freedom. Paul writes about this in Colossians chapter 2. Paul wrote, the letter to the church at Colossae and the letter to the church at Ephesus while on house arrest in Rome. 
And so you see a lot of similarities between the letter of Colossians and the letter of Ephesians. And this is what Paul wrote in Colossians. Again, you can begin to put the pieces of the picture here together. Speaking about Christ, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he made a public display of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Do you see the victory march language? And now seated on his throne, Christ Jesus, our great high king, our great warrior, instead of receiving gifts from men, which is what David writes in Psalm 68 of the king, the king would receive gifts from men. Paul takes Psalm 68, makes it illustrative of Christ, and says, now that he has won the victory, defeated sin and death, he now gives gifts to his recaptured captives. That's you and that's me. It's a beautiful picture. These three verses here, verses 8 through 10, hark back to the Old Testament. And Paul takes them and he makes them illustrative of Christ. And he paints the picture of our great warrior king who has come home from conquest, a victor. And he brings with him all the spoils of battle. And following behind him are those recaptured servants. That's us. And not only does he receive gifts from men, like the the king of Psalm 68, but Jesus turns around and he distributes gifts, spiritual gifts, to his own. We, the church, are the freed captives in his train. and We receive his riches as gifts. Friends, the greatest gifts on planet Earth are spiritual gifts. We get all kinds of excited about other gifts, but the greatest gifts are those that are spiritual. Spiritual gifts given to us by Christ at our conversion for the good of the body, for the building up of the body of Christ, that I might serve God and in doing so serve others within the body. Christ won the right to grant them to us that we might enjoy them, but that we might employ them. How are we doing there? How are we doing at employing the spiritual gifts that we've been given? Are you serving How? Where? Many, many of you are, and it's so encouraging. Again, just this last week, I mean, I I come in and there's decorations hanging from from rafters. I mean, the the creative minds. I think about spending some time down in Imagination Station uh, this last week. I spent some time in the the kitchen this last week with those that were serving. Just amazed at how God has gifted the body of Christ to serve one another. What a great picture, just this last 168 hours of this last week were, of individuals employing their spiritual giftedness. Paul goes on to explain the application of Psalm 68 to Christ. Look at your Bible. He says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. What in the world is Paul saying here? What is Paul referring to? I think we best understand what Paul is saying here. I think we best understand what Paul is referring to here in light of Christ's humiliation and his subsequent exaltation. The phrase, the lower parts of the earth, it's probably best interpreted, the earth below. The earth below. He ascended. What does that mean? Well, it means that he also descended. What does that mean? It means that, that, that the, 
the victor of our salvation, divested himself temporarily of his throne, and he took on human flesh and became a man. That's John 1, 14. He took on flesh and lived among us. That's his humiliation. He descended. He came to earth. He took on flesh. But he descended that he might ascend. That's his his victorious resurrection. Paul wrote this in Philippians chapter 2, speaking about the, the exaltation of Christ. He said, For this reason God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He descended. His humiliation, he took on human flesh, he walked among us, was tried and tempted in every way, yet without sin. He went to a Roman cross voluntarily, was crucified, dead, buried, but God exalted him to the highest place, and he ascended, where he now sits, our mighty victor on heaven's throne, distributing gifts to men. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. You see, the goal of Christ's exaltation is that he might fill all things. That's what Paul says there. Jesus fills the universe with the exercise of his sovereign lordship over all things. Not not only over the, the principalities, he triumphed over them by the cross, but also by the distribution of strength and gifts to his people. He has gifted each believer individually. We're incredibly unified. We're uniquely diverse in our gifting. And Jesus Christ, our great victor, has won the right to distribute those gifts to us. Let me turn your attention to number three on your outline. Not only has Jesus gifted each member of the body in a unique way, but number three here, Jesus has also gifted the church as a whole with spiritual leadership. Jesus Christ has gifted the church as a whole with spiritual leadership. Look at verse 11. Paul writes this. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Jesus Christ sets out to accomplish his goal of filling all things by supplying his people with everything necessary to foster the growth and the maturity of the body of Christ. We noted a few moments ago there are five places in the New Testament that outline some 19 or 20 various spiritual gifts. Two twelves, two fours. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. And no two lists are identical. The list gift that Paul enumerates here in verse 11, though, is quite different than the list that exists in those other places in the New Testament. You see, the other lists... Speak of the variety of gifts that Christ has given to individuals. But in the list here in verse 11, in this list, Paul enumerates the gifts that are the persons themselves given by the ascended Christ to his people to enable them to function within the body of Christ. Let me rewind that. The list of spiritual gifts that are given elsewhere in the New Testament speak about those unique gifts themselves. But the gift list that exists here in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 speaks about those persons whom God has used to equip the church. 
those persons, those offices, those roles that God has given to the church to equip her, to mature her. Those are the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Let's look at those briefly. Paul begins with the apostles. The word apostle is derived from the verb apostello. It means to send off on a mission. To send off on a mission. We could actually translate the word an envoy or an an ambassador. Someone who goes on a mission with the credentials of the one who sent him. Uh, If we're thinking in those terms, Jesus, in a sense, was the foremost, capital A, apostle. Sent by God to accomplish the mission of redemption. He, He is the king. He is the great victor, the great warrior who returns from battle giving gifts. There's a sense in which he is the foremost, capital A, apostle sent by God to accomplish the mission of redemption. But after Jesus came the 12, and then there was Paul. Paul was, a graft, was grafted into that uh, little band of apostles there. What were the qualifications for an apostle? They were two, and they were very specific. In order to be an apostle, one had to be directly chosen by Christ. Mark 3.14 says Christ appointed them or called them apostles. They were directly chosen by Christ. And secondly, the second qualification is each apostle had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. That's Acts chapter 1. An apostle had to be called directly by Christ, and they had to be a direct eyewitness to the resurrected Christ. Paul was the last one to meet those qualifications, and therefore the office of apostle has expired. The office of apostle has expired. Look back, if you have your Bible there in front of you, at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. The office, or the spiritual gift, that Christ gave to the church, namely that of apostle and prophet, those were foundational gifts to the church. They no longer exist. Look at chapter 2, verse 20. But on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The apostles and the prophets were foundational gifts given to the church. They were the first generation of ministers, so to speak. So the office of apostle has expired today. But in a broad sense, we have to be careful here, you have to understand what I'm saying. In a broad sense, believers today accomplish an apostolic work, not an apostolic office. There are no apostles today, but we can say that our our ministry is apostolic in nature. It's apostolic in nature. As we work in the church, evangelism and service, we can say that that's apostolic in nature. But that's not what many modern church leaders mean when they lay claim to the apostolic office. As a matter of fact, interestingly enough, I was reading an article uh, in last month's uh, edition of Christianity Today, speaking about lead pastor Bill Johnson pastor of a huge church out in California called Bethel Church. And this is the short paragraph that I read this week. A distinctive of Johnson's ministry is his interpretation of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Johnson believes these verses outline five gifts or ministerial functions for Christians today believing that apostles and prophets are meant to serve the church today. I don't think that's what Paul's saying here. Paul says that 
The church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. We can say that our, our ministry within the church has an apostolic nature to it, but there are no apostles today. There are no apostles today. When the New Testament was completed, the office of apostleship has ended, but God used them mighty, mightily. The apostles were a gift to the church. Secondly, the prophets. The gift of a prophet differs from that of an apostle. This is also a foundational gift to the church here. You see, the apostle gives an authoritative declaration to the whole body of the truth concerning Jesus Christ, but the prophet interprets that that authoritative word and explains the truth so that it becomes very clear, vital, and compelling. What is the role of a prophet? The role of a prophet is to declare. Prophets are declarers or proclaimers. Matter of fact, the very word prophet there comes from the Greek root prao, which means to, to cause to light or to shine up. It's coupled with the prefix pro, which means before. So to, to cause before, to light up or to shine up, that's what a prophet did. They, they, they boldly proclaimed the word of God such that it was visible to the body of Christ, such as they understood it and could live in light of it. The prophet is the one who stands before and causes the words of the apostles to shine. So there is a sense in which we can say that that teaching today can be lowercase p, prophetic in nature. But that just means to declare what has already been declared. In, In the Bible, there's two ways to think about prophecy. In the Old Testament, it was foretelling, looking forward into the future. In the New Testament, prophecy is spoken of in terms of forth-telling. In other words, just declaring what has already been declared. Prophets were declarers of the word of God, used to light up the word of God so that it was understood by God's people, the church. In that sense, the apostles and the prophets were wonderful gifts given to Christ, to the church. They are the foundation upon which the church of Jesus Christ rests. It's important to know today, though, that there is no new revelation from God. Anyone who claims to be a prophet today and to speak new revelation should be avoided like the plague. God has spoken to us, Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. And every time we read our Bibles, every time we read the word of God, we're reading a prophetic word. Anytime you hear someone teaching the word of God, maybe I shouldn't say anytime, Hopefully, when you hear someone teaching the God, there there is a sense in which it's a prophetic teaching. In other words, they're just declaring what has already been written. Nothing less, nothing more. All I do in the pulpit every Sunday is try by God's grace to, to shine light on the word of God. But there is no new prophecy. There is no new word. God has communicated everything he wants us to know for life and godliness this side of eternity in his completed, infallible, inerrant word. And where every single heresy begins its bud is where someone has has started or has spoken of a new word, a new interpretation, a new revelation from God. God has told me this, you should do this. We should do everything, be careful to do everything that is written in God's word. There is no new prophecy today. The office of apostle and prophet has ceased. 
But there is, there is a group that God has given to every generation. And they are the evangelist and the shepherd teachers. They are the second generation of ministers. If the apostles and the prophets were the first generation of ministers that God gave, that Jesus Christ gave as gifts to the church, the second generation of ministers, which are alive and active today in the church, are the evangelists and the shepherd teachers. Look at evangelists there. Unlike apostles and prophets, the gift of evangelism has not ceased. It's an oftentimes misunderstood gift, When we talk about the gift of of evangelism, or we talk about an evangelist, we're not talking about a a guy in a slick suit with with sugar-coated sermons, with slick sermons. The gift of evangelism doesn't mean that a person is a preaching superstar. The gift of evangelism simply means this, and you very well may have this gift. As a matter of fact, some of you in this room definitely have this gift. The gift of evangelism is just the ability to be able to simply communicate, but persuasively, simply and persuasively communicate the gospel message. That is, it's effective. God has gifted you to be a communicator of the gospel message. I didn't wise and persuasive words. And Paul said that to the church at Corinth. I didn't come to you with wise or persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the, the Spirit's power. Matter of fact, I was weak and I came in trembling. But Paul was a preacher of the gospel. An evangelist. Some of you have that gift here this morning, the gift of evangelism. You're skilled in presenting the gospel in a way that people can understand and receive it. You're a bearer of good news. Your soul is burdened when you think about the lost, and there ought to be a sense in which every single one of us has a burden for the lost. Now, having said that, some of you are gifted with the gift of evangelism, But not being specifically gifted with the gift of evangelism doesn't let a single one of us off the hook for being about the business of evangelism. You understand that? We, every single one of us, irregardless of our gifting, is to be a mouthpiece, is to be a proclaimer of the gospel message. Some of us have a unique gift there, but just if we haven't been uniquely gifted there, doesn't let us off the hook. We're all to be bearers of, of the good news. We all share that responsibility. Lastly, I think these two go together. Paul speaks about shepherds and teachers. The imagery of the word shepherd, it was applied to God to describe the way that he cared for and protected his people. But it it comes to be applied to church leaders who carry on Jesus' pastoral ministry. You see, Jesus is the good shepherd who cares for his flock, and thus church leaders, pastors, and elders in the church are exhorted to be shepherds of the flock, to care for them, to nurture them, to feed them, and to protect them. That is the role of a shepherd teacher. Matter of fact, here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, the Greek phrasing, a shepherd teacher, permits us to join those two words together so that we can actually speak of a pastor teacher. A pastor teacher. We oftentimes tend to think of pastor as an office in the church, and that that is true. But there's a difference between the office of pastor and the gift of pastoring or shepherding. Here's what I mean by that. There are only a few within our local congregation that, that, that are in those positions of the, quote, office of pastoral ministry. But many of you are gifted as shepherds. Many of you are gifted as shepherds. And that isn't a gift that is 
designated or relegated to the male population within the church either. Many of you ladies have the gift of shepherding, discipling, nurturing others in, in, in their walks with Christ. Not teaching from the pulpit, but that shepherding heart. It's a gift given to God or given by God to many. Shepherds and teachers. Shepherds have a desire to lead and to feed and to guard the flock. I was thinking about that this week. Feeding the sheep takes, it takes diligent time and preparation and study. It's not an easy task, but it is a fulfilling task. I'm, I'm fueled by, by studying and preparing and then communicating. I'm a broken vessel and I, I do it poorly at times, but, but I'm fueled by trying to shine light on God's word so that God's people understand it and can live in light of it. But preparation, it's challenging, it's difficult. Feeding the sheep takes diligent study. I heard a man once say, a man who desires to preach without adequately preparing doesn't desire to preach, he desires to perform. A man who desires to preach without desiring to study doesn't really desire to preach, he desires to perform. Let me draw your attention lastly, we're at our time, to number four in your outline. Jesus expects each member of the body to use their giftedness. Jesus expects each member of the body of Christ to use their giftedness. The purpose of Christ giving gifts to the church is expressed in three three prepositional phrases. Look at your Bible here. What's the purpose of this gift giving? What's the purpose of Jesus winning and securing spiritual gifts and doling them out to his bride, the church? Number one, to equip the saints. Number two, for the work of ministry. And number three, for the building up of the body of Christ. What does this look like practically? Well, those who have been given those teaching or those leadership gifts, which Paul expounds here in our text, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, those who were given these gifts are to use those teaching gifts to equip the saints. To equip the saints for what? To equip the saints to use their unique giftedness for the work of ministry. You see, the role of pastors and teachers today is to use their teaching giftedness to turn around and equip God's people to use their unique giftedness for the building up of the body of Christ. I love the word equip there. It's the Greek word katartismos. It's only used here in the New Testament. It has the idea of preparing, completing, training, and discipling. We're to prepare to train to disciple God's people to equip them for the work of ministry godly leaders gifted to the church by Christ are to equip or to train the saints to serve Christ by serving one another with their unique giftedness friends let me say this I've got more notes you can find them online for the sake of time the gifts that you've been given aren't primarily for you Matter of fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to use your gift or to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Your spiritual gifting wasn't given to you primarily for you, but was given to you primarily for the good of the body of Christ. In other words, you get the joy of giving, but you're not to hide your spiritual gift. You're not to withhold them or hold on to them. The body of Christ is built up when every believer plays their part. Note the we all. In verse 13, that's inclusive of everyone. 
we all. A well-known coach was once asked, how much does college football contribute to the national physical fitness picture? Nothing, he said. Why not, the startled interviewer asked. Well, said the coach, the way I see it, you've got 22 men down the field desperately needing rest and 40,000 people in the stands desperately needing some exercise. And he says, that is a picture oftentimes, sadly, of what exists in many modern churches. Let's get busy in ministry. It's there that you learn your unique giftedness. Jump in, dive in, and begin to serve. Let me make a few practical applications here regarding your spiritual giftedness as we close this morning. Number one, don't allow the gifts of the Spirit to take priority over the fruit of the Spirit. Don't allow the gifts of the Spirit to take priority over the fruit of the Spirit. It's been said that giftedness without character, or giftedness with character is essential. Giftedness without character is lethal. In other words, it's possible to exercise whatever spiritual gift or gifts that you've been given by Christ without love, without joy, without peace, without patience, without kindness, without goodness, without faithfulness, and without gentleness or self-control. In other words, you can use your spiritual gift for yourself, which is using it in a way that it was never intended to be used. It's possible to serve begrudgingly. It's possible, it's possible to teach with a bad attitude. It's possible to give with impure motives. It's possible to use our gifts in hopes of being seen by others. You see, God's not only concerned with what you do. He's concerned with why you do what you do. Okay? So as we're, as we're learning, as we're trying to discern how God has gifted us, let's not forget to use our giftedness within the context of the fruit of the Spirit. The more we're growing in Christ-like character, the more useful our giftedness will be to the body of Christ. Secondly, don't allow a preoccupation with your spiritual gift to keep you from serving outside of areas of your unique giftedness. Don't allow your particular giftedness to keep you from serving in areas outside of your unique area of giftedness. One pitfall that we want to avoid as it pertains to our spiritual giftedness is compartmentalizing our lives or our giftedness. In other words, to say, my spiritual gift is serving, and so I don't have to give. Or I'm a distinguished teacher, so I don't have to get my hands dirty in mercy ministry. Remember, the body of Christ is a family, and we all, to some degree, share a responsibility for building up the body of Christ, regardless of your particular gift mix. Don't allow a preoccupation with your particular spiritual gift to keep you from serving in areas outside of your giftedness. Lastly, let me say this. Don't allow an uncertainty about what your spiritual gift may be. You may be sitting here this morning thinking, I, there are things that I enjoy and things that I like doing, and, but I don't necessarily know exactly what my spiritual gift is. Well, here's what I would say to you. Don't allow an uncertainty about your spiritual gift to keep you from serving at all. See, the other pitfall that we want to avoid is excusing ourselves from serving at all. That's not the way that God works, brothers and sisters. God has designed it such that we learn our particular spiritual giftedness through the means of serving. And how do you, how do you grow? How do you, how, do you, how do you know that? Well, you jump in to various ministries, and then your giftedness becomes evident over time. You see, a better question might be, instead of what is my spiritual gift, a better question might be, how can I serve Christ and his people? Focus on that question. And I think over time of serving Christ and his people, your spiritual gift will become evident 
to you. The latter will get you moving, and when you're moving, you'll learn in what capacity God has designed you to serve within the body of Christ. Don't use uncertainty as an excuse. Use it as an encouragement to get busy.